This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, December the 1st, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. On the show today, the news panel assembles to tackle some of the top stories of the week, including the federal government and Google reaching a deal over the Online News Act. Michelle McQuig, Joy Gupta, and I will consider what that could mean for negotiations with Meta and what it means for the media more broadly. Vancouver City Hall is introducing enhanced security measures for people attending council meetings. How do you balance the security of elected officials and the public's access to them? And Quebec's legislature has unanimously adopted a motion in defense of Christmas. Where's the line on stat holidays that are religious in their origin? That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But let's get to the top story of the day. Some news and notes from the United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai. The first notable takeaway, a fund has been set up to assist countries battered by climate catastrophes. Charles de Ledesma has that story. Nearly all of the world's nations finalized the creation of a fund to help compensate countries struggling to cope with loss and damage caused by climate change, seen as a major first-day breakthrough at this year's UN Climate Conference, as early cash started going into it. Sultan al-Jabbar, COP28's president, hailed the first decision to be adopted on day one of any COP and said his country, the United Arab Emirates, would chip in $100 million to the fund. Other other countries have stepped in with big ticket commitments, including Germany, also at $100 million. I'm Charles Dulladesma. And more than 130 countries signed the Emirates Declaration on Sustainable Agriculture, Resilient Food Systems and Climate Action. It's a landmark resolution that tackles the relationship between food production and climate. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken reflects on the purpose of the agreement. A growing population means the global demand for food is likely to increase by an estimated 50% by the year 2050. An escalating climate crisis means that crop yields could drop by as much as 30% over that same period. So do the math. The meetings continue for a few more days. Coming back to Canada for some economic stories. Stats Canada released its November job numbers a few minutes ago. The Canadian economy added 25,000 jobs. The unemployment rate did go up to 5.8%. That's because proportionally more people entered the job market. These next two stories may sound contradictory. I'll let you decide. A couple major Canadian banks posted nice quarterly profits yesterday. Don Kelly has those numbers. 
The Royal Bank's fourth quarter profit came in at $4.13 billion, up from $3.88 billion in the same quarter last year. RBC is raising its dividend by $0.03 cents a share. So is CIBC. Its fourth quarter profit rose from nearly $1.19 billion last year to $1.48 billion. TD Bank Group's fourth quarter profit fell to $2.89 billion, down from $6.67 billion last year, as it took a restructuring charge related to job cuts and put more money aside to cover potential bad loans. But it's raising its dividend by $0.06 cents a share. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. So I said these may seem a little contradictory because a few hours later, after posting a quarterly profit of over $2 billion, TD became the latest bank to cut a bunch of jobs. Michelle Zedekian has that side of the story. The bank says it's reducing its workforce by about 3%, amounting to roughly 3,100 employees based on its third quarter headcount. The cuts are a similar amount to what Scotiabank announced during the quarter and what RBC guided to in its third quarter results. TD says it's already made some of the cuts and will continue to do so throughout next year. It will also achieve some of the reductions through attrition and will work to redeploy staff where possible. Many of the big banks have been reducing their headcounts as they deal with the economic slowdown and a weaker consumer. Michelle Zedekian, The Canadian Press. The economic slowdown that uh, still amounts to quarterly profits in the billions of dollars. And by the way, dividends are going up for shareholders, but got to cut some employees. Got to take care of the shareholder. Why take care of your employees? That's right. Comrade Brown is in full force on a Friday morning. Over to the Daily Polls at Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked about smart home technology. The question was framed a little bit negatively. I understand, but it prompted a lot of great response on air and on social media. What is stopping you from investing in smart home technology? 46% of you said the price, 31% of you said security, 14% of you said reliability, and 9% of you said nothing, I already have some. But all these great responses came in on social. Kelly writes in on Facebook, I have some Google Home Minis and some smart lights. The most frustrating aspect is when it does not understand what we're saying. Tony says, price and integration with other devices and ease of setup. That's where I live. <laughs> ease of setup. I want things to be easy. I, I bought a soundbar last week and I opened up the installation manual and I could not believe how much uh, work was going to go to setting up this soundbar. And then I just uh, put it away and said, I'll, I'll deal with this later. Becky comments in on Facebook. I have some already and love it. I would totally get more if they were priced a little lower. Pearly Pigtails chimes in, bought a smart plug and couldn't figure out how to set it up that smart stuff needs a tech savvy owner really appreciate everybody taking the time to chime in yesterday on social media i'm always encouraging you to do so let's see if today's topic and today's question brings you out of the woods it's all about the international day of persons with disabilities because the idpd is this sunday what is one thing that society can do to meaningfully improve the lives of people with disabilities. Not giving you options, I want you to put on your big thinking cap and chime in with whatever you like. Alex, I know it's a big, broad, borderline unfair question, but you and I work in this space every single day. I feel like you've got a good answer brewing in there. 
So for me, it all has to do with building codes, Dave. And specifically, I want to see any new construction really have a high standard for universal design, regardless of what the function of the building is. Whether it's a new development for homes, apartments, offices, storefronts, any renovations that have to get done that require a teardown and rebuild, I wanna see a truly high watermark for accessibility and universal design because I think that is really how you move that needle forward in terms of making things accessible. Yes, we have codes for you know public buildings at the federal level. I, I wanna see it trickle down into every other aspect of construction because that's really where you're gonna to start to see that shift that people will have more access to buildings in and around uh, the, where they're living, where they're accessing. They don't have to be restricted to the types of homes they have to seek out in order to live or have to yeah. think about how can I make this space accessible for me? If we just incorporate that in every single aspect, then it no longer becomes a part of the conversation. It no longer becomes an issue or, or a barrier that we have to overcome or basically deal after the fact because that happens so often like how many times have we had conversations or done stories on places where it's like well we did this to make this space accessible no just have it accessible from the yeah. beginning yeah that solves a <laughs> lot of problems then you start tackling these other issues like transit and livability within the cities but i think if you address the actual infrastructure of what's being built and how it's being built that's gonna mean huge and meaningful change within the community. What I like about that, Alex, when you talk about a building code is it puts a little bit of onus on the private sector. It's not simply, mm -hmm. oh, the government's gotta fix this. Yes, it might be the government that develops the building code, but the private sector must match the standard. I also had housing on the brain. I was thinking a bit more broadly about affordable housing because I think that's mm -hmm. something that's easy to sell because it actually benefits everyone. But alongside the affordable housing piece of the equation, comes what you're talking about, accessible affordable housing, building codes that mandate levels of universal design and accessibility built in. Now that one, when you talk about the affordable housing crisis, that one that is that one's going to cost government money. Like there's only one institution in this country that can fix it, and it's not the private sector, it's government. So that is going to cost some government money, but if you're going to throw a bunch of money at it, if you're going to throw a bunch of money at the housing crisis, which governments are doing, then there better be the accessibility and universal design lens applied as well. So Alex has building codes. I'm also thinking about housing. Laura Bain, what about you? What's on your mind? Yeah, well, I've got two here, and I really just couldn't pick between them. I think that uh, the first one is just low-hanging fruit, the Canada disability benefit, because disability poverty is connected to so many mm -hmm. other issues. Mm -hmm. um, domestic violence, housing, like uh, health, it could just go on. So I think getting that right, yes, but uh, I think also moving quickly on that because I think that a lot of people are just sort of barely hanging on. So I would really like to see that prioritized and, and getting into people's bank accounts. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is just more education about disability for the general public. And somewhere where I think that that is really effective is in the classroom for grade school. So mm. I do uh, presentations for the Rickanson Foundation where I um, speak to young kids about accessibility and I really see the impact of that. It's a chance for them to just ask their questions and to meet someone with a disability. And I think it's very powerful in terms of um, reducing stigma and it's gonna pay off in the long run in dividends when they're in positions to hire people or to just be, you know, 
educating their peers, educating their parents. Also at post-secondary, I think it needs to be integrated into, um, you know, a lot of post-secondary curricula. Yes. I am in school with a lot of people who have Bachelor of Social Work degrees, and I definitely, I don't mean to call anyone out, but it's common for me to be approached and asked by someone with a social work degree, like, what do I call a disabled person, you know? And um, mm-hmm. there's just kind of like a, a real ba- lack of knowledge. And and so uh, I would say whatever space you have control over, if you work in an office, if you are a teacher, if you have some kind of access to educate people about disability and, you know, bring someone in to, to do that properly, that's going to really have a, a positive impact in changing the culture. A, a disability literacy, almost a literal disability literacy and understanding. I think that's a really good answer. And in regards to the uh, disability, national disability benefit, I, I have an inkling, Alex, that you or I may have answered this question with that as well, if it wasn't for the fact that you and I talked about it pretty extensively on Monday as well. So, yeah, so we missed you on Laura. We missed you on Monday, Laura, but this actually was a, a big broad topic on a Monday show as well. So, Alex, I feel like I probably would have attacked that one as well if we hadn't already hit it pretty hard this week. I yeah, know, Dave. I, I, oh, sorry, Alex. I, I was just going to say, I, I know it was. I was yelling at my phone because I had so many thoughts on Monday's daily poll. I was like, why wasn't I on this one? Sorry, Alex. Sorry to interrupt. No, not, not a problem, Laura. It's great to get your insight into that. And yeah, Dave, absolutely. You know, uh, financials is something that we've talked about extensively on, on this show and, and explored elsewhere on this channel when it comes to the disability community and, and how, you know, there needs to be meaningful meaningful supports from government and and from the the overall society to support people with disabilities and so yeah we, we I mean we, <laughs> yeah. we can continue to have conversations yeah. about it yeah that's the thing I, I forced you guys to pick just one we probably could have spent the entire hour just tackling this one but for now we must move on at accessible media on Twitter at accessible media Inc on Facebook what is one thing society can do to meaningfully improve the lives of people with disabilities you can also chime in via email feedback at ami.ca feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone and give the show a ring 1-866-509-4545 coming up next the news panel kicks off to discuss the deal that the federal government has reached with google in regards to the online news act who's the winner who wins this deal Michelle McQuig, Druida Gupta, and I will ponder that question and more. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv or streaming in beautiful audio at amiplus.ca. It's Friday. That means the news panel gets together. Let's welcome in the panelists, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hello, Dave. And good morning to Michelle. Good morning to you both. Let's jump right into this. The federal government has agreed to set a $100 million yearly cap on payments that Google will be required to make to media companies when the Online News Act takes effect later in the year. John Kennedy offers a bit of context. 
The Online News Act compels tech giants to enter into compensation agreements with news publishers for content that generates revenue for companies such as Google by appearing on its sites. Broadcasters and French language and indigenous news organizations would join newspapers in being eligible for the deals, with draft regulations suggesting the amount of money would be linked to the number of full-time journalists on staff. A formula in the government's draft regulations to implement the bill would have seen Google contribute up to $172 million to news organizations. Federal Heritage Minister Pascal Saint-Ange sees the deal as a big win. Our deal is, tra is transparent. It's $100 million that doesn't exist right now in the system. It's new money, new revenue. It's good for the new sector. And the other thing is, if there is a better deal struck elsewhere in the world, Canada reserves the right to reopen the regulation. Saint-Ange wants this deal to set a template for negotiations with Meta. This shows that uh, this, uh, this legislation works, that it's equitable, uh, and now it's on Facebook to explain why they're leaving their platform to disinformation and misinformation instead of sustaining our new system and participating in our news, in the, in the viability of our new sector. Okay, so that's the setup in broad strokes. Joita, what do you want to explore here? It's a topic we've talked about, I think, a couple of times on this panel, so it won't come as a surprise to people who listen regularly that we are revisiting this decision. Uh, we have, many of us, seen the impact of Facebook uh, removing news media from our news feeds, that, which look very different than they did um, same time last year, for example. And this conversation about the Online News Act happens at a time when the Canadian news media landscape is changing in some very significant ways and is in some respects in a period of decline. We've heard about journalists getting laid off. We've heard about the demise of local media and uh, many publications having to sh close their doors permanently because they can't sustain themselves. And a lot of it comes down to the diversion of traditional ad revenue from our traditional sources of print, television, and radio, and away from those to these online platforms. And so the Online News Act really became a way to try and level the playing field, but Meta, that is Facebook and Instagram and so have what have you, as well as Google, weren't just going to take that lying down. And so you really look at this back and forth between social media giants and the Canadian government. It's not the first government, nor will it be the last to engage in this particular tango. But I think it's good to reflect on how far we've come in this particular um, tussle, for lack of a better word, who, if anyone, is an obvious winner. And as you pointed out so beautifully, what does this mean for additional negotiations with Meta. And if you really want to broaden the scope of our discussion, is this really going to be a game changer for Canada's media? Yeah, all three of those questions worth exploring. Michelle, it's obviously a little early to understand who might truly be a winner on this one, but I'm going to take the uh, very unusual position where I'll sit on the fence and actually say, this is actually a win-win. I think the federal government comes out of this looking good. I think Google comes out looking good. And I think the media companies that are going to get a couple extra dollars in their pocket are going to feel good too. Like, I think, I think right now, as of today, December the 1st, 2023, this is a win-win-win across the board for everybody. 
okay. You know, I, I can I can roll with that one because it's I, I I'll reserve though the right to change my mind because oh, so there's do I. so much <laughs> we, we we there's a ton we don't know, including what the basic regulations of the Online News Act are gonna look like. Yeah. Those are due to be released later this month, so it's it's quite soon that they're expected. Uh, so those details could totally change my answer. But right now, yeah, I'd be inclined to agree with maybe a few fewer points to the government because essentially what they had to do to bring this deal to, to the table was to cave on a lot of the things that they mm -hmm. were trying to hold out for. Google was really pushing for the central media fund model that's happened. So what's going to happen is $100 million will be paid into one central fund that will be dispersed probably by payroll, as John Kennedy's clip indicated. Uh, that was something that the, gov the government wanted... 172 million, according to some reporting, and they had so Google has paying less. They're getting the the, the kind of model that they wanted. Um, they won more from this than the government. That said, the government was had taken a number of black eyes over this particular uh, file, and it was really, really in their best interest. And it would have been a glaring failure if they had managed to get news cut off for all Canadians. So. There was really the impetus was really there for the government to land this fish, and yeah. it looks like they did. The, the government was went into this negotiation playing hardball, and so did the social media and tech companies. So did Google, and Meta continues to play hardball. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I do take the grain of salt that you've thrown out there, Michelle, saying Google got a lot of wins here, but ultimately, if the goal of the federal government was to put money into newsrooms, then more money is going into newsrooms, and not an uns yes. not an unsubstantial amount of money. No, that's extremely true. But I will point out one other thing, too, on the winner's file is that one of those winners at the moment looks to be CBC. If you're going by this payroll model, uh, CBC basically accounts for the bulk of journalism employment in Canada, and they stand to get a third of the pie at this moment. Yeah, the minister that's... has since come out and indicated that that's probably that might not stand. Uh, again, so many things we don't know, and she's indicated that she's aware at least of that particular particular uh, potential discrepancy but mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. i mean like there's the winner lose question is a bit more complicated and i keep throwing <laughs> i keep throwing no, no, no. water on it but yes you know at the end of the day though dave i think you're right and win-win at this exact moment is fair yeah, Juita, again, I, I know that it's not exactly the spiciest media take in the world to say that everybody walks away from this feeling pretty good but i do feel like everybody walks away from this feeling pretty good yeah, at first blush, that's certainly the impression that I get as well. But I, I like Michelle, will hold off on chugging champagne and, you know, launching a celebration because there is <laughs> quite a bit that we don't know. Um, and, and the devil is often in the details. And again, just as Michelle very uh, rightly pointed out, what the government ended up getting was a cap of $100, $100 million, which does fall short of what they'd originally asked of uh, Google uh, which is $172 million. And the dollars and cents really do matter in this instance. We're talking about the livelihood of, of journalists. We're talking about the viability of our news media. And in its original proposal, Google said we would be willing to compensate Canadian media up to $100 million. Yeah. So, you know, right out the gate, they get what they had but wanted. But, Joita, I don't mean to interrupt in a rude way, though, but if they don't reach a deal, they would have gotten zero. This zero is my point. So this true. is my point. Yeah. No, you know, that, that, that's exactly where I was going with this. So, yes, I mean, the other way to look at this is that had the government not raised the issue at all, then there would be nothing on the table. Because certainly Google or Meta, for you know, in a 
different example, like I said a few minutes ago, aren't exactly rolling over to hand over money. So it it is an important step. And it, and it is worth noting that the Canadian government isn't closing the door on negotiations with Google either. If a better deal is struck elsewhere, they reserve the right to reopen con- a conversation yeah. with Google. Yeah. So this is a really important step to say that if another jurisdiction manages to finagle something better, uh, we may in in fact end up seeing a change to the deal that they've struck with Google. There is one loser in this, at least if you listen to some individuals in the independent media space, there's been a Mm -hmm. lot expressed by smaller media companies or independent media companies that feel they're not going to get any of this pie and have been left out of this conversation. So that is something over the course of the next three weeks when the actual regulatory framework comes out that will need uh, sincere close attention because one of the concerns here is that a lot of this money is going to go to corporate media. Yeah, I think that's a no. very fair concern. The other one that I want to raise too is the full-time employee model. Um, yeah, of course, a lot of outlets have a number of full-time employees, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them rely on freelancers and part-time employees. So their profile on, in the news ecosystem might appear to be larger than the government will consider it when it comes time to hand out that money. So yeah. that's another area that I'll be watching pretty closely. I think there's some self-evidence to this question, so let's not dwell on it too long. But how could this deal end up serving as an indicator on the meta deal, the deal, the negotiations that are going on with uh, Facebook and Instagram, Juita? It may or may not. I mean, uh, at at one point, Google and Meta versus the government was. Uh, in very simple terms, the discussion that we were having, but now Meta is the last man standing. So the fact that Google negotiated a deal means that Meta might be more willing to come to the table and work something out with the government. With that said, when you think about Google, uh, which did not pull Canadian news from um, its search engine, there may have been a fear that if they did pull Canadian news content from Google, then Um, Canadians would simply turn to their competitors for news. So I don't know if the same argument holds for Meta, which now owns Facebook and Instagram, and I think also WhatsApp. They do. You know, don't. Yeah. So there you go. That's three big ones, right? So I feel that compared to Google, in some respects, they have a great deal of hegemony in the social media space. And I don't know if there's been oodles of people who've left Facebook or uh, abandon WhatsApp because they don't get news anymore. So I oh, think, okay. Well, you know, what, it, WhatsApp's a messaging software. Like you can still share, share yeah, news articles okay. on WhatsApp. Yeah, I'm, but my point is, you you can't. I I don't see a mass exodus uh, because people don't get news media on their on Facebook anymore, right? And so I don't know. If <laughs> it's actually made meta, my it's actually made my Facebook experience better. <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but it's true. And and then that's the part and that's the part that makes me think that maybe it's not a simple slam dunk where Meta's gonna say, oh geez, okay, well Google rolled over and handed over hundred million dollars. Maybe we need to cough up as well. So that's what makes that's what makes it a yeah. little that that's it, Michelle. I think there's an element here where like the news tab on Google, even for Joe Everyman or every person is a useful thing news being off my facebook and instagram it's 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 made a lot of people in my life who are journos um upset in terms of them sharing their work but the experience as a user has actually been better there's less toxicity on my facebook right yeah no noted and and i you know i'm I'm on Facebook so little these days that I can't say I've seen it that much, but it's it's I notice it as well. I, I do know people who are quite upset about the lack of ability to share Canadian news on Facebook, but I don't really see 
I don't know. On the template question, I'm 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 a little pessimistic about this. We've now been going for what five or six months now without Canadian news. I'm sure it's not affecting Meta's bottom line. They've gotten used to this is their new status quo. They say this is the only way they can quote reasonably comply with the legislation. They see they genuinely see this as their only option at the moment, at least that's how they're positioning it. And the government is, has not moved on the main issues that Meta has been calling for. So could yeah. the te- the Google one reopen the template and maybe give Meta something to point to as a workable model? Maybe. But certainly based on the tone coming out of both parties right now, they sound like they're about as far apart as ever. So yeah. I'm not super optimistic about that. The, the thing that maybe offers a little bit of a case for moving a deal forward with Meta, again, is the idea of capping, right? One of the initial concerns brought up by the social media companies was proportionality of payments, that if there's more quantitative posting by people that we don't control, we don't want to have to pay them uh, an infinite number of dollars. So I think even just the idea of putting a cap somewhere and saying, we're looking at something more resembling a flat fee might at least increase the appetite. But again, Meta has actively moved away from being a news disseminator, not just in Canada, but around the world. They, they made that big push after the 2016 election in America and then realized, oh gosh, this is a lot harder than we thought it would be. And uh, they've somewhat tried to get away from that model, at least somewhat so. Okay, here's the last question. And again, it's big and broad and probably uh, deeply unfair because we only have about three or four minutes to really dive into it. But does a deal like this really change the media landscape in Canada? Michelle, my instinct is no, because I still just see a lot of like haphazard work in uh, broadly in our industry that is sort of like labeled as journalism. And I think that inwardly Canadian media still needs to focus on doing qualitatively a better job. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't see this as a game changing maneuver. I do think it will be uh, significant and helpful to specific outlets. Uh, if that means that those outlets are able to hire more, I do see some potential upside there, maybe getting reporters into geographic regions that yes, are underserved at the yes. moment, that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, But again, as with a lot of this conversation, a lot will depend on how that money is deployed. And then, of course, it comes down to how the individual outlets choose to use it. So it's really difficult to predict any kind of broader impact. But do I see this as the silver bullet that's going to magically fix the industry? No, I don't. <laughs> that said, I, I, I certainly welcome the development because, you know, as you both pointed out, this is a hundred million dollars that was not available before. Yeah. So. Yeah. Again, Michelle, I'm, I'm going to go to something that you mentioned and John Kennedy mentioned in his report, the idea that some of the money distribution is going to relate to the number of journalists on staff and not the number of people in marketing departments or human resources departments or accounting departments like that matters. If that even changes the impetus and priority of a news agency to yes. bring in more journalists and more broadcasters, mm-hmm. that to me can be a positive impact. Uh, but I will I, also say hurrah to including broadcasters. You mentioned that, and that was a concern for a while that broadcasters wouldn't see a big piece of the pie, and it's great that, that they are being included. <laughs> I'm a little self-interested in the way that I say that, but that's, uh, <laughs> but that's just where no, I'd but be. No, really, like radio, radio matters, so oh, great. Yeah. Like, and, keep it up. <laughs> and, local, and local radio has been getting uh, destroyed for about two or three years in, in a bunch of even really big markets in the country. So, uh, yeah, local media, local radio definitely matters too. Uh, yeah, Joita, so I, I, I think that the people who are already doing great journalism, the uh, agencies and companies that are already doing great journalism and great commentary and great broadcasting, they will continue to do so. And maybe it improves the viability a little teeny smidge, but I don't see this as a big ground-shaking change to the landscape. 
Me either. And if you look at the numbers, just in terms of print media, bearing in mind that 80% of ad revenue uh, in Canada now goes towards social media. Uh, if you just look at the the print media side of things, in 2018, uh, print media got about $1.5 billion in, in ad revenue. And that had whittled down to $934 million by wow. 2020 so just two years from then and 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 if you if you continue to observe that trend and uh, the shrinkage may have increased um you know not several years on from that it's almost 2024 so while 100 million dollars seems like a lot of money to the average person uh it doesn't really close the gap i think is the question that we need to be asking uh the drain on advertising revenue has been tremendous and it really is a question worth asking whether you know yes we'll have a few silver linings in the sense that they might hire more journalists or continue to do great work but it has so fundamentally altered the landscape of Canadian media that it's not going to really be a turning point uh, as many people might have hoped but again hundred million dollars that we didn't have before is is nothing to scoff at. Yeah, the, the sands have shifted, but this is at least a minor oasis. There you go, a little bit of poetry on the way out. Oh, Joey and oh, Michelle, thank you. Well, I do what I can. <laughs> Coming up after the break, a quick conversation around Vancouver. Vancouver City Hall is introducing enhanced security measures for people attending council meetings. It begs the question: How do you balance the security of elected officials? and the public's access to them. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joyda Gupta. Let's address the next topic. Vancouver City Hall is putting in some new security measures. Members of the public attending council meetings and other public events will have to go through a metal detector and a bag check. The city says the change is about an evolving security environment. Saskatchewan's legislature also brought in some temporary security measures after protests impacted government proceedings. I think it's worth exploring the idea of putting more and more distance between politicians and citizens. And Michelle, the core question here is what's the balance between the security of elected officials and the public's access to them? And I'll sort of put a little more preamble on this. One of the things that always struck me when I lived in Ottawa was the ability to go into Ottawa City Hall and literally any any human could talk to their councillor in the hall or a different city councillor in the hall and walk around with relative free reign. And I always thought, this is what a nice democracy feels like. I can go shake the hand of David Shevchenko and be like, hey, I'm really interested in the bike path that you installed on Bank Street. I like the way you did that, or occasionally be a little critical of the, of the member of council. But I used to feel like, wow, this is like what democracy should feel like. That's really mm-hmm. cool. And, and I have to say, I've never really thought about it in those terms, I guess, because I just, I wasn't around... Toronto City Hall very much growing up, but it's a really interesting question. And I feel like it's been one that's been batted back and forth and where the pendulum has swung some 
over the past decade, I feel like social media in a way mm-hmm. started to really narrow that gap. And I, I remember when Twitter, uh, before Twitter turned into the uh, the cesspool that it is today, <laughs> a lot of people saw it as a great way to access politicians. It was a cool way to get to know some of them on a more, or to get see the more personal sides of them, those that chose to engage that way. Certainly a lot of politicians leaned into those platforms and, and re- were responsive and engaged with, with their followers that way. And that felt like a, a sea change for a number of people. I remember talking about that in terms of access to politician, not in the physical sense, but in the, in, in, more, in a different sort of way that mattered equally to them. Uh, but with that, then, of course, we get the threats. And that's why I think we're seeing the pendulum swinging the other ways, because we've talked on this panel before, but how politicians are feeling deeply under attack. There's documented evidence of great numbers of the great spikes in, in, in threats and even outright violence against female politicians, politicians mm-hmm. of all stripes, really, but women face it more, racialized politicians face it more. But it has become a more volatile environment for politicians. And so these kinds of security measures... Uh, while they might dampen the democratic experience as as you had it, Dave, and I think that's a really interesting point, um, there's also a reason why it's happening, and it's a tricky mm-hmm. balance to strike. Yeah. Um, and I don't think having some measures in place uh, is necessarily going to change the democratic fabric, but I do think it's a necessary measure given the climate we're in. Yeah, I, I think a bag check and a metal detector is probably not the worst idea in the world to go into a place of, of power, you know, like I, I, mm-hmm. I get it. Also, what's, what's notable here is, I, I should have mentioned this in the intro, if you are found to have something in your bag that's not allowed, you are allowed to go stow that somewhere or store that somewhere. It's not like the mm-hmm. airport where they're going to go drag you into a room and uh, and hold you there for hours <laughs> on end without a lawyer. Like, you know, it, it's, it's not quite as draconian as I made it out to be. In the case of Saskatchewan, it was because of, of an escalating process protests where it was some ID checks when people were going in. Anybody who's been to the parliamentary buildings in Ottawa know you have to go through a security check as well. So it, mm-hmm. it's it's not as if it's preposterous, but, but Joita, I think Michelle is right to identify that there's a lot of people in this world across the political spectrum that have maybe lost their ability to act like they have some sense when they get around people with power. Michelle mentioned uh, female politicians. Uh, Jagmeet mm-hmm. Singh, federal leader of the NDP, has been uh, publicly harassed and attacked by people. And, and I think back to the 1990s when it was not uncommon to find Prime Minister Jean Chrétien at the Harvey's mm-hmm. down the street from, from the halls of Ottawa. And I just feel like we're getting further and further away from what felt like a Canadian fabric that was access mm-hmm. to Canadian uh, politics politicians and more to that American ivory tower uh, position where like the public almost never gets to interact with their politicians. I think 9-11 changed things in a very fundamental way. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the reasons why the security state has become so apparent uh, and you don't have politicians at a local fast food restaurant or the ability to stroll down Councillor Alley, that's what they used to call it in Toronto City Hall, where you could just go and knock on someone's door and shake hands and talk to a local councillor. In theory, that's a really good idea to still be able to do that. And I can see how a bag check or going through a metal detector and and jumping through hoops and needing to make appointments could be a deterrent for someone who in nowadays long gone could have just walked in and and talked to their counselor or representative of the counselor. So yes, I mean, it's it's not what it used to be, uh, but at the same time, 
there are reasons for that. Uh, imagine, if you will, a scenario where there was some kind of violence, maybe there was a shooting or a stabbing, then what would the conversation be? The conversation would be, well, why wasn't there better security? Yeah, so yeah. I feel like yeah. it's really hard to turn back time on this one. But social media has, in some respects, really opened up Councillor Alley in a different way. Now you've got a digital yeah. space where you can interact with politicians. But I, again, encourage people to take that with a grain of salt, because not everybody is on social media. A lot of older people don't get on social media and interact in the same way. And I don't know if it has the same impact uh, as face-to-face -face yeah. conversations. And that's my and I, worry that we sometimes oversell social media. And I feel like the social media space is now a lot less organic than it was when it first took root. Uh, I think I, the you know in those early days of those early politician Twitter mm. accounts, it probably was the politicians themselves operating them. Now those are totally folded in with communications departments, there's staff involved. It's not the direct means of communication that a face-to-face -face conversation would be, or even that social media might have been in the early days. Uh, yeah, which is why, I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, please, Joanna. I was going to say, which is why it's sort of imperative on councillors, especially if you're, you know, in a place like Toronto, where you don't have a party mechanism to back you up, to start to really roll out the town halls and other kinds of public meetings so that your constitu constituents actually get to see you and hear from you and talk to you. Because otherwise, uh, you know, it's not a question of goodwill, because otherwise you're you're just going to be finished the next time the election rolls around. So you know, it is incumbent upon politicians to make themselves more available, uh, but also for people who want to interact with politicians, I think there's an important distinction between raising a protest, uh, which is legitimate in a democracy, um, versus behavior that could be discriminatory or harassing in the way that Michelle laid out. Yeah, and it's a very it's a very fine line. It's a very fine line, and it cuts across all political stripes. That's something that I want to emphasize this morning, that it's not just yes. one side of the political spectrum that doesn't seem to know how to behave themselves when they end, no, up, in no, the no, hall, no. When they end up in the halls of power. But, Michelle, that was actually going to be my concluding thought. I think Julia and I are having sips of the same tea this morning in regards to a model that might create more mandatory town halls, that there needs to be a situation where constituents are given easy access to spend time, talk to, and ask questions of their elected officials. I, I, I just think that if you're going to continue to throw up some barriers in these public spaces, then you at least need to create more opportunities in public space for individuals to interact with politicians. I, I think I might have dipped into that same teapot because I totally agree. It's <laughs> it's it. This is literally what they're there for. This is their job is to represent constituents. And to do that, you need to know what the constituents think and feel. So you need to be able to communicate with them and have that kind of access. And without those channels, then you're basically just a figurehead. So yeah, I completely agree that the that that point of connection needs to be accommodated somehow. Um, I'm not sure how what that would look like. More town halls, maybe. Um, tricky, though, when, when you have politicians, that, when, when security decisions are being made by an entity that doesn't necessarily reflect individual offices. But yeah, there, there needs to be that balance needs to be struck. It's, it's, it's really crucial and fundamental. To the way or, or you can borrow some ideas that a couple of premiers roll out, which is uh, radio shows. Uh, the premier of Alberta does a weekly radio show. Yes, and, no, that, and, that, good and, point. and that predates Danielle Smith. Jason Kenney used to do it as well. Uh, the premier yep. of Ontario uh, famously likes to talk about football on Fridays. Can't blame him. But, you know, maybe an opportunity to ask a couple non-football questions. He and, he and his brother, questions. the mayor of Toronto, once had a pretty notable radio show. That uh, Yeah, I, I sure, get, sure. maybe using an open line radio show might actually be the way to do it. A little talk radio. Look, I'm pumping my fist with excitement because I love me a little talk radio. Okay, all right, let's put this one to bed. Coming up after the break, Quebec, coming up after the break, Quebec's legislature has unanimously adopted a motion in defense of Christmas. What? Come on, really? 
Okay, the panel will dive into it after the break. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joy Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic for you. Quebec's legislature has unanimously adopted a motion in defense of Christmas. What? Emily Javesky explains. All 109 members of the National Assembly who were present voted in favor of the motion, which denounces attempts to polarize events that unite Quebecers and that have been part of the province's heritage for generations. In an October discussion paper, the Canadian Human Rights Commission describes statutory holidays related to Christianity as examples of religious discrimination because they're the only statutory holidays linked to religious holy days. It says that as a result, those who celebrate other religions may need to request special accommodations. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. It must be December because the media is discussing the war on Christmas. Michelle, why did you bring the culture war to my shores this morning? Because I'm a troll like that. Uh, no, because because I had the same reaction as you upon seeing the, the initial headline of what? A government legislature sees fit to spend some time on an issue like this, but here we are. It is happening, and certainly uh, there is a strong contingent out there that feels that that would be a very suitable use of government time and resources. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, the, the, this, the issue specifically raised by the Human Rights Commission strikes me as one that's interesting and worth discussing. Uh, but the whole issue is just, we're, we're going to be seeing this time and again, and I figured it was uh, this was a good example right here and a good chance to... Uh, <laughs> to take a look from our own perspective. I Forgive me for being a little cantankerous in this conversation, but I'm going to use a word here in regard to Quebec's response, but I'm also going to use it into the fact that the Human Rights Commission was even bothering looking into this in the first place. Preposterous virtue signaling. This was a chance for the Human Rights Commission to virtue signal, oh, look how inclusive we are, we're considering Christianity and stat holidays. <laughs> and then it's a chance for the Quebec legislature to go, we are not going to stand for this. We believe in Christmas. It's preposterous, it's preposterous. Joita, I understand why the Human Rights Commission like may want to contemplate this or consider this, but the idea that any resources or time was spent <laughs> typing out a discussion paper is such a preposterous waste of time that allows everyone in the world to virtue signal. Uh, yeah, I mean, everyone's gotten a bit carried away with it for sure, but their argument is still a sound one, which is that if you are a non-Christian and you have a holiday that's not Chris Christmas or Good Friday or Easter, and you're kind of scrambling to take that day off, you know, having to make all kinds of negotiations with your employer. Do you think I could have the day off for Rosh Hashanah? Do you think I could leave a bit early, you know, for something else? So their point isn't a isn't a bad, like the Human Rights Commission's point isn't in and off of itself a bad thing to talk about, especially in the context of some other conversations we're having around 
uh, colonialism and Canada's uh, indigenous uh, communities and how uh, settlers are relating to indigenous people. So yes, I mean, there's something there to be talked about, but it it does sort of cause this, this knee-jerk reaction in a lot of people, which is what we're seeing in Quebec. Uh, but really, I mean, it's not... I wasn't given the impression that the you know that the Human Rights Commission is suggesting we do away with Christmas or anything. Uh, so it it really just felt like it was a it was a, a discussion paper that could have just as mm-hmm. easily been ignored as as I, this is my cynicism talking as so many do, uh, <laughs> but instead it <laughs> instead it got blown out of proportion. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, earlier this year, the panel did discuss, this panel, the three of us discussed, the city of Winnipeg, considering ways in which allowing certain stat holidays to be flipped around and moved around based on somebody's cultural background or values. And I came out saying I was in support of this. Like, I think there is some room for negotiation here to say, you know, does every stat holiday need to truly be a stat holiday under certain caveats that, like, the business still operates? Like, you can't just say, I'm not going to... I'm." I'm not going to take a stat holiday on Christmas, but the office is closed, so guess what? I get a day off, right? Like, there needs to be a little bit of a broader understanding of what we're really talking about here. But, Michelle, I'm going to circle back off earnestness into preposterousness. I think this is such a waste of oxygen for the people at the Human Rights Commission, and I think it's a waste of oxygen for the politicians in Quebec, because it's all just easy slam-dunk wins. Well, and, and, and like, and what does it accomplish? I think is the main thing. We're talking about a discussion paper and a kind of a non-binding motion. Um, it, it certainly is an interesting use of everyone's time on this. I kind of land with Joita in that the issue, the issue, the fundamental issue, the core issue raised by the Human Rights Commission is one that a lot of workplaces are wrestling with, especially as they try to implement you know, diversity and equity initiatives more broadly. It leads to these kinds of questions. So these are the sorts of issues that I think people, institutions, even potentially governments at some point are going to have to reckon with at some point and, and try to find up, come up with some kind of workable solutions. But I feel like dialogues such as they are like this one or, or at least uh, tit for tat situations like what we just encountered don't do a whole lot to advance the conversation in any new directions. And a lot of people's reactions are going to follow along fairly predictable and dare I say partisan lines. You know what I think the risk is here in this conversation, though? It's that because someone's going to throw their hands up in the air and say, you know what? You don't like stat holidays, then you get no stat holidays. <laughs> like, like, like uh, Julia, I know it kind of sounds like I'm doing like reductio ad absurdum, like I'm just taking it to the most preposterous outcome. But, but that's what I worry about here, right? That like, I think we need more stat holidays in Canada. I think we should have at least one a month a- across the board mm-hmm. that could either be neutralized with silly names like Family Day, or maybe we have December. 25th off every year and we just don't call it Christmas like I don't care but I'm but I just worry that the way this conversation might get framed is ah I can't make any of you happy then guess what workers nobody gets any days off nobody gets any yeah but no one's gonna do that because that's political (laughs) yeah Yeah, no no politician is ever gonna say I'm going to let's, let's just look at the war on Christmas Let's face facts. There is no war on Christmas. There is no war on Christmas. This is silly. I mean, why is everyone getting in a tizzy about it? It's because it works. Because for conservative politicians, the war on Christmas is a way to pander to their base. And in Quebec, we have a history of pandering to um, the majority uh, at the expense of minorities. 
whether it's saying, you know, you can't wear religious symbols or what have you, and, you know, saying immigrants need to learn French in six months and, you know, so on and so forth. There's a pattern of of trying to marginalize uh, people who are non-Christian and who may be newcomers to the province. But, you know, let's face facts. Christianity is hardly... Uh, coming under threat in Quebec of all places. Is there not still a giant cross in the National Assembly and a giant cross in Montreal, Montreal looking down on the city? So, I mean, it's just, Quebec is not the place that I would point to uh, when if I had to talk about a, a place in Canada where Christianity had necessarily come under threat. This is the only reason this is even an issue that we're talking about is because it has been made into an issue and it's been made into an issue because uh, it it's panders easy. to the base of yeah, it's easy and it panders yeah. to the base of certain yeah, politics. Yeah, and, and that's why and that's why we're talking about it because it's easy and it panders, and we love a good <laughs> we love a good pandering around here. You know, Michelle, the one thing I would probably end here as a as a concluding thought on my end, and then I'll give you last word on this, is that at a certain point. I'm not even sure that Christmas is even a Christian holiday anymore. Like, it actually does strike me as more of a cultural thing. Like, yes, Hanukkah is a Jewish holiday. And yes, Christmas, if you go to church that day, is a is a Christian holiday. But I, I just don't maybe look at it that way anymore. I see it as something that's sort of a broader cultural celebration of the winter solstice and uh, and not even everybody gets to take Christmas off. I've worked on Christmas Day. There's a lot of people working in the service industry who still have to work on Christmas. So it's not even like a stat holiday is some kind of blanket. Everybody gets the day off. It's not, although it's definitely still the dominant culture and, 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 and Christian occasions do still dictate the vast majority of the stats in Canada. If you think about mm -hmm. them, it's, they're all, a lot of them are tied to Christmas, to Easter. Even Thanksgiving itself has sort of Christianish roots. So it, I know I hear your point, but a lot of people do still primarily have it off. And I, for me, the the question that I keep coming back to with something like this is, obviously, I'm like all of you, I'm highly in favor of sad holidays, and I do think we could use some more too. But why tie them to religious occasions? Are we past that point? That seems like a bit of an antiquated model. You talked at some length, Dave, about the lack of monoculture. Um, demographic makeups are such that perhaps a different approach to stat holidays is in order and we tie them to different things or at least frame them in different ways. That's where I land with this. This is That's the kind of conversation I would like to see happening in a more productive way. Okay. I I, th I think there's probably a, a, a bigger conversation to be had about like what constitutes a stat holiday and yeah, just neutralizing a bunch of them. But I, I, I just, when you talk about the idea of uh, it being a political, a political walking off the ledge um, <laughs> to say we're eliminating all stat holidays, I just think there's like not a lot of wiggle room on Christmas and Easter and, and then we can kind of go from there. But that, that's it. That's just where we land on these things. Um, I know both of you have to go, but I want to both ask you the daily poll question real quick on the way out the door. It's 9.59 a.m. Eastern time right now. Michelle, I know you've got a hard out, so I'm going to ask you first. Sunday is International Day of Persons with Disabilities. What is one thing society can do to meaningfully change the lives of people with disabilities? Oh, you throw this at me with no notice. I sent you, um, I sent you an email this morning. I, I apologize. I did not see it. Um, basic income. Universal basic income. Boom. Good answer. Good answer. Joita? Uh, jumping off of Michelle's point, employment. Mm. All right. I love it. Money, money, money. It's like the Million Dollar Man's theme song over here. Michelle, Juita, right. have a great weekend. Michelle, <laughs> talk to you on Monday. Juita, talk to you next Friday. Thanks Take so care. Thanks, everybody. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press, and Juita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI.
audio coming up after the break, a short regional news update, and then Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv as well in beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca or maybe you are listening on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. I'm Dave Brown. It is Friday, December the 1st, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Center for Equitable Library Access is selling preloaded Envoy Connect devices for clients to enjoy. Karen McKay tells you to get your hands on these sweet audiobook players. And which artist did you spend the most time with this year on Spotify? Laura Bain chats about Spotify Wrapped in the Entertainment Report. It is probably the best feature any tech company has ever figured out. I love Spotify Wrapped. Cannot wait to share some of my annual findings with you. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Beginning in the prairies, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe says the province is going to stop collecting the carbon tax from electric heating starting January 1st. Moe says the province has yet to determine exactly how they'll do it. We are going to need to determine who is heating their home with electricity and then estimate the percentage of their power bill that is being used for that heat. But those are details and we will get that all worked out. Mo says the province will also stop remitting the carbon price on natural gas to the federal government. Over to Alberta. Alberta's government has released an economic update. The province is projecting over $6 billion in surplus. Finance Minister Nate Horner says there are a number of sectors that are experiencing growth. Business formations remain near record highs. Our energy sector continues to be a driver of jobs and activity, and at the same time, we're seeing growth and diversification in emerging sectors like tech and aviation. Horner still urged some caution about broader economic factors. We know some things remain beyond our control, and we're aware of the many challenges the current global economy presents. Rising costs, higher interest rates, and general economic uncertainty are weighing on businesses and consumers. We're not immune to these challenges, but we're in a strong position to weather them. Over to Ontario, the Green Party of Ontario has won its second seat in the province's legislature in a by-election. Alison Jones takes a closer look. Ashlyn Clancy won handily last night in Kitchener Centre over the New Democratic candidate in what had been an NDP riding. Clancy, a city councillor, will join Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, who represents the nearby riding of Guelph in the legislature. Mike Morris holds Kitchener Centre federally for the Greens, and ahead of the vote, Clancy said that was an advantage. She says her win was a team effort, and she'll now take her fight for better housing, childcare, and transit to Queen's Park. Allison Jones, The Canadian Press. Thank you very much, Allison. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat.
Don't look now, Brock, but after a horrendous start to their season, the Edmonton Oilers are on a four-game winning streak, picking up a 3-1 win last night at the Winnipeg Jets. Brock, the Oilers are back. Yes, they are. They are back for at least this moment as we're having this conversation. Um, but listen, there is so much talent on the Edmonton Oilers, and we've talked about this a lot. There had to be something that turned this team around, and finally it seems like this is happening. This is such a fun team, and they can be. I just want to see them play better. And Connor McDavid, as we mentioned earlier in the week, said – we're not dead in the water, and I think they're proving it now with this uh, four-game win streak. So I, I'm getting on board, but I'm cautiously optimistic, if that's how I can put it. If if I were to throw cold water, just for the sake of balance on the four-game winning streak that's happening right now, the goaltending is still incredibly unreliable. The game against Las Vegas on Tuesday night, by the way, tremendous win against Las Vegas, but what was the final score on that one? 6-5 in the shootouts? So you're still talking about a team that's allowing a ton of goals. Stuart Skinner, their goaltender last night against Winnipeg, had a tremendous performance, uh, stopping over 96% of the shots that he faced. Like, <laughs> fantastic way to go. But I, I still think, Brock, there's a fundamental underlying issue that if you can't get stops, if your goaltending is below league average you're going to have trouble sustaining this because, yes, the four-game winning streak is absolutely wonderful. It's absolutely amazing, and yet they still find themselves pretty on the outside looking in in regards to the playoff race. So they're going to be forced to play impeccable hockey, and they don't want to get involved in too many of these 6-5 hockey games like they had against Las Vegas on Tuesday nights. And, and that's me being a Debbie Downer. I know I'm being a Debbie Downer. The Edmonton Oilers, they fire their coach. They're playing a little bit better. They're on the win streak. But I still think the fundamental flaws that led to the slow start remain in place. Well, and I would also say to you, I think they've dug themselves too deep of a hole the way that they have those flaws that you talk about. If you can't stop the puck as much as you should, and you've got to dig yourself out of like a one and eight or nine start, whatever the heck it was, that's that's a real deep hole to start when you have those glaring holes that you mentioned. So as much as I am optimistic, I would also echo the fact that I do think Maybe I'll eat crow later in the year, but I do think they've dug themselves too deep of a hole. Yeah, to get out of. they're only out of the playoffs by five points as of this morning, but there's about four teams in front of them. So it's not just that they have to keep winning. They have to hope for misery around them. So so it's not as simple as saying, ah, win a few more games in a row and we're right there. There, there are some other mathematical machinations that suggest they're in, a, they're in a tough spot. That said, Connor McDavid clearly came back from that injury too early to play in that outdoor game against Calgary. He clearly has gotten healthier. The offensive production is coming back. And as Connor McDavid goes, you know, the best player in all of hockey, the best hockey player breathing oxygen, so go the Edmonton Oilers' chances of making the playoffs. Hey, Brock, the Winnipeg Jets, let's do a little check-in on them. Yes, they lose the game last night to Edmonton. Winnipeg, as of this morning, continues to hold down a playoff spot with the third spot in the Central Division. 
it's so interesting to me, Brock. They're one of these teams that just doesn't get the attention. I think one of the reasons is that Winnipeg is in the middle of the country and maybe isn't as close to the Vancouver media market or the uh, Toronto media market. There's probably the components as well that even though players like Kyle Connor are tremendous goal scorers, they're just not seen in the same light as, say, a player as Connor McDavid. So the Winnipeg Jets are this team that are in the middle of the country. Their success has been somewhat moderate and their expectations going into the year were somewhat moderate. So maybe one of the reasons why this team doesn't get the same attention that they deserve is that there's just nothing like flashy about it right now. No, no. And they also have their challenges too in in goal with Connor Hellebuck. Sometimes he can look like you know, gangbusters and the fact that he's, you know, can stop everything. And then other times you look and you go, yikes, what happened there? And and honestly, Winnipeg loses me a little bit sometimes too, because I like you look at this and go, yeah, but what am I what am I watching this for? Like what is what is my end game other than to talk about them briefly? Like I just I don't find myself gripped in the way that they play. I, I just I, it's it's weird. And so maybe the country you know, feels the same way unless you're a diehard Winnipeg fan. But I, I said it at the beginning of the year, and I still maintain this team is a wild card team at best, in my opinion. And do I think they're going to get there? Maybe, probably. But there's just, like you said, there's just nothing gripping me to yeah. be like, yeah, I'm going to tune into this Winnipeg Jets game because I, I want to watch. I want to watch Nikolai Ellers pass the puck to Kyle Connor, and like, like and, and I love these hockey players, but yeah, it just it just sort of falls into that that little bit of a blank spot in the middle of the country. You talk about Connor Hellebuck, right? This is their star goaltender. They just signed him to a nice big extension, and he has basically performed to expectation this season. He's a, basically a top ten goalie. He, he's ranking about ninth overall in uh, expected saves. His save percentage is right around number 10. His goals against average is right around 10 for primary starting goalies. He's top five in the league and wins because he plays so many games. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, Connor Hellebuck is playing to expectations. So it's hard for you or I in the morning to be like, let's go trash Connor Hellebuck or let's go celebrate Connor Hellebuck because <laughs> right. he's doing exactly what we expect him to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's And, and again, like I, you know, he could be so much better, you know, the Winnipeg Jets also committed to Mark Shifley, you know, long term and said, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to we're going to do this and we're going to use these two players as their cornerstone, which is fine. But when you get that big of a deal to me, I look at this and go, yeah, but you got to rise above expectation because you just got this deal. And I just see him just doing his thing. I don't see anything rising above yeah, expectation, but- nor, nor do I see it going below it either but note the, but, but you have to note the price tag right he's not making the Andre Vasilevsky or Elias Sorokin elite goaltender money he's making right at that range like he's probably about the 10th best paid goalie in the league and his stats have been about the 10th best in the league this year so like he's yeah. playing right to expectation so again I, I go back to this expectation thing you mentioned Mark Shifley their star center who just signed an extension he's averaging over a point a game like that's excellent like that's like that's really good so Winnipeg is just yeah. one of these teams where it's like yeah you're just really good but you're not great yeah no it's 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 very weird uh watching the winnipeg jets and i mean i'll just keep watching i'll I'll be honest with you right here 
I watch more highlights of Winnipeg Jets than I do actual games because yeah. it's just like you you get what you're gonna pay for, yeah. and they're getting what they're paying yeah. for. Only so to many, be honest, only so many hours in the day, Brock. Okay, while we're in Central Canada, let's do one more check in with the Calgary Flames, who uh, after a really tough start to the year have somewhat righted the ship, but Brock. They make a deal yesterday. They make a trade with the Vancouver Canucks. They ship out defenseman Nikita Zadorov to the Vancouver Canucks for a third and fifth round pick. So even though Calgary's playing better, maybe the fire sale has begun because Nikita Zadorov was one of those expiring contracts. They probably weren't going to resign in the summer. And boom, he's out the door. Calgary had made mention when they were struggling that if things didn't turn around they were going to look at trading people and getting assets you know the the common buzzwords that you hear about assets and trades and all these things and i always find it funny dave that teams play better when you start to see that white flag sort of be waved a little bit it's kind of like no no but we're good we promise we're gonna do better but it's like yeah but you should have done better early in the year and so at some point, the Calgary Flames brasses look at this and say, we got to get something for something. And Vancouver is going to love this trade. Like, they, this is this is good for them. This is a little bit of a piece that says, you know, we're going to we're gonna add to our defense. And uh, Vancouver is playing really well as well. Nobody expected that at all. So I just find it bizarre that Calgary looks at this and says, yeah, we're going to play a little bit better. Well, you should have done that earlier on in the year. Well, it's it's what you have to do, though, because even if they made the playoffs with so many players walking out the door, they're, they're not going to be a particularly competitive playoff team. So go get assets. Uh, and yeah, Nikita Zadorov, uh, not exactly the most stunning or entertaining defenseman in the league, but a lot of physical physicality, grit and size, still an ability to move the puck when necessary. That's a great addition to the Vancouver Canucks, and it only bolsters what's been just a lovely start to the Vancouver Canucks season. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. You as well. That is Brock Richardson. Oh, wait, don't don't get rid of Brock yet. Brock, you still there? You still there? I'm still here. Brock, I want to ask you the daily poll because uh, Sunday is the day of International Day of Persons with Disabilities. And the daily poll that I'm putting out there today for everybody to answer is what is one thing that society can do to meaningfully improve the lives of people with disabilities? Um, More, more exposure and more... Um, looking at the stories of people with disabilities. So instead of saying, well, we're going to, you know, bore us with inspiration porn because we got out of bed, let's feature what they do on a regular basis that makes them who they are beyond their disability. I like that one. That's a good answer. Good answer by Brock Richardson. Brock, now you can have a good weekend. You as well. Don't forget, you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Coming up after the break, which artist did you spend the most time with this year on Spotify? Laura Bain unwraps Spotify wrapped in the Entertainment Report. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Spotify Wrapped will be unwrapped in the entertainment report in a couple of minutes. But first, here's Alex Smythe with the weather story of the day. 
Alex, you've got a little bit of reflection here on hurricane season. Yeah, Dave, because we've officially turned the calendar over to December, and so that brings an end to the official hurricane season. And for 2023, it's been one of the busiest and most active seasons on record. In fact, it was the fourth most active season on record, and these records go back to the 1800s, so that should give you an indication how busy things have been. There were 20 named tropical storms that developed across the Atlantic Ocean Basin this year. Seven of those turned into hurricanes, and three of those were hurricanes that had a strength of category three or above. So on average, the Atlantic hurricane season would produce about 14 named tropical storms, seven of which were hurricanes, and then three major hurricanes from that. So while it seems like it's relatively on par, it's more surprising given the fact that we are currently within this El Nino event. And typically once you're in an El Nino, that dampens the severity and the occurrence of major storms like this because of how the winds kind of shift and push and break up the storm systems before they can truly develop, but that didn't happen this year. So it's really gonna be uh, surprising as well because once you factor in the the concept that Canada ended up having more storm warnings and storm threats than Florida did this year, Dave. Wow. And that's truly surprising because Florida is one of the yeah. more active regions within the U.S. because of their location and proximity to the two major bodies of water. Wow. So, yeah. So, needless to say, this hurricane season's over. Canada has endured a lot. But now we got to start looking towards next year because if this is how this year's unfolded we can expect probably another active year going forward so uh, it's never too too early to start planning for next year right Dave? <laughs> right of course get the plywood ready alex thank no. you for this thank you that's alex Smythe with the weather reports in one minute laura bain will unwrap spotify wrapped in 2023 but first tesla is rolling out their cyber truck mike debusky revs up this report Finally, the future will look like the future. At a live event Thursday, 10 customers took delivery of the first consumer-ready Cybertrucks. The electric pickup was initially targeted for a 2021 launch that faced numerous production delays. And it's interesting to see Elon Musk very candid with the struggles that the brand has faced getting the Cybertruck to market. Inside EVs, Kevin Williams says since the Cybertruck was unveiled, other electric pickups have hit the market from brands like Ford, GM, and Rivian. So he says the jury's as to whether Tesla's foray into the high-margin pickup market will be successful. For every person that thinks it's going to flop, there's like two that think it's going to be a wild runaway success. I don't think anybody knows. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Switching over to the world of entertainment, Spotify users have been titillated this week when the streaming service released their 2023 edition of Wrapped which means that every user got their own little individualized video of their listening habits for the year. And Laura Bain, you're not a Spotify user, but this popped up on your radar. Yeah, that's right. So as you say, Spotify wrapped, it's their annual end of year tradition where they give you all of your data. <laughs> they give you back all of your data that they've yeah. taken um, <laughs> about what you've been listening to that uh, that year. And of course, there's the ability to share your results on, on socials, which generates just like a ton of buzz for Spotify. 
Um, and they also release the top 10 artists globally, kind of some trends there. I'll give people a second to take a guess at who they think that is. Uh, T-Swizz. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it is uh, Taylor Swift, of course. And um, we had some Canadian content in there as well with The Weeknd at number three and Drake at number four. So as you mentioned, I'm out of the loop on this one uh, because I don't use Spotify, except for just very occasionally I have their free account. I mainly use Apple Music and um, they've emulated uh, Spotify Wrapped as a lot of other streaming services have done. So for Apple Music, it's called Wrapped. But, you know, I kind of checked it out last night. I didn't even know it was in there. It definitely doesn't have the same, like, <laughs> same marketing. And it doesn't seem to have the same sort of features and aesthetics that I think make Wrapped so popular. Mm. Although, you know, you probably can share your results on socials. I didn't look at doing that. Um, I felt my results weren't totally accurate um, and there's, you know, I dug into a few reasons why that might not have been the case in terms of just like how I use my account. But nonetheless, my top artist was Sinead O'Connor. Nice. Uh, so right with my finger on the pulse of popular music there. <laughs> Listen to tunes from 30 years ago. That's me. Uh, so I had uh, read her memoir this year and that kind of inspired me to go and listen to her back catalog. Um, and my top playlist was Franco Pop, which I was listening to a lot in uh, preparation for my trip to France that I took last June. But Dave, your results were much more interesting than mine. Let's uh, hear a little bit about your Spotify rap. Well, I don't, know, you are a user. I don't know about interesting, but let's be autobiographical here. I'm just going to run through some of these. And Laura, you just raise your voice if any of these stats sort of jump out to you. So 74 total music genres, 1,800. 135 different songs a total listening time now this is just music not podcasts total listening time 111,197 minutes uh senior producer Andrika Delanerol did a little math on that turns out that's about uh 77 days of total listening to music during the year my top five genres rock hip-hop pop pop rock and stomp and holler i'm still not quite sure what stomp and holler represents as a music genre my top song last night by morgan wallen the uh, country song that garnered a whole bunch of buzz this year and spent a whole bunch of time at the uh, top of the billboard charts probably because of me uh, my top artist Voice Avenue, a acoustic cover band from Florida. The top five artists generally were Boyce Avenue, Death Cab for Cutie, Girl Talk, Morgan Wallen, and the Foo Fighters. And uh, they have this neat feature where they determine what city's music taste most aligns with yours based on the data they collect. My city, the city where I could make the most musical friends, Bozeman, Montana. It also assigns you a listener personality. It called me an alchemist. Basically, I create my own playlists at a rate uh, well above the average user. And then just a little note here on podcasts, over 95,000 minutes of listening to podcasts as well. So, Laura, those are my stats. That is shocking, Dave, and it's no surprise to me why you are just such a wealth of information. That's a lot of content consumed. I'm kind of curious, like just even with that music alone, when are you listening to that music that you're getting so much of it in? Is it kind of a commute situation or putting it on in the background when you sleep? Like, how are you, how are you uh, getting in those two and a half months of listening <laughs> a year? Uh, 
so I would say the podcast listening occurs on the way into work and the way home from work and then a little bit in the afternoon, a little bit of research work-wise. The music is just sort of ongoing, Laura, but I would say the music is definitely more of an evening thing. I found myself uh, playing host to a lot of people over the course of the year and you plug in the old Spotify to the TV or the surround sound speaker or the Bluetooth speaker and you just start playing music for folks. So I, 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 would, oh, yeah. I would say that the music is making its way in sort of more in the hosting environment uh, when I'm having people over, but definitely the podcasting is happening on the way into and out of work. It's how I kind of get my brain revved up in the morning. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Do you find it helpful to kind of have this uh, data given to you at the end of the year? So I think I think if all big tech gave me something so beautiful and shiny and interesting with the with the info, the data and info they steal from me, I'd be even cooler with big tech stealing more of my info. Right. Yes. And I, <laughs> yeah, there are some, some ethical questions. It's sort of, it is sort of a funny marketing campaign, you know, it's like here, just so you know, we have tracked everything, <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. I feel just like a touch jealous to be honest, because I listen to uh, various platforms and I uh, use CBC, their um, like podcasts for some of their music and yep, stuff. They're yep. on demand. Um, I have a record player. It's certainly not tracking that. I've got some stuff saved in my library. Um, for podcasts, I do the Apple podcasts, which don't tell you, you know, how many hours to my knowledge. So tempted to switch over to Spotify yeah. to get this neat little package one, at the end of the year. One stop shop. One stop shop, Laura. Okay, we've been having a little bit of fun here. Let's uh, take a moment to reflect on the passing uh, of an artist, Shane McGowan famously of the Pogues, uh, passed away. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Shane McGowan, as you mentioned, best known for being the lead singer of the Irish Celtic punk band, the po the Pogues, uh, died yesterday at the age of 65 after a period of health challenges. And this one hit me a little bit in the gut when I read it because I was a big Pogues fan as a teen. Um, a lot of people will know them for the song, The Fairy Tale of New York, mm -hmm. um, the Christmas song. I've been known to belt that out a couple times pretty much every Christmas. Um, but their peak was arguably in the 1980s, uh, but I still heard them a lot around Halifax in the 90s and 2000s. And I'm sort of thinking maybe they were a little more popular out here because of the Celtic music connection. Um, you know, you'd hear them in a lot of bars and things like that. But I brought a music clip. Now, I didn't bring Fairy Tale of New York because that's about to be played everywhere. Um, but I do have an, a clip from another one of their hit songs, uh, Dirty Old Town. I kiss my girl by the factory wall. Dirty Old Town. Dirty Old Town. If you've spent more than uh, 15 minutes in an Irish pub, uh, you will probably have heard one of the live bands uh, play that song. Yeah, I wasn't bringing folks a deep cut there for sure, but uh, <laughs> I, I chose that one because um, as a teen, I I did a lot of busking downtown with my guitar, and um, that one is one that I have some fond memories of uh, doing some busking in front of the old Halifax library with a friend kind of doing the harmonies on the dirty old town. So, yeah. um, yeah, like it's, it's a, it's a somber note, but uh, Shane McGowan will be remembered for a long, long time. There's a mm -hmm. big legacy uh, in Celtic music in punk music and across the board. And Hey, add a Christmas song in there too. And uh, you'll be famous forever. Hey, Laura, thank you for this. Have a lovely weekend.
Yeah, thanks. You as well, Dave. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Maybe a little more dirty old town on the way to break here because uh, after the break, we'll do a little talk about vegan mac and cheese. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Ramya Amuthan is standing by. Alex Smythe, you want to serve up a news story all about mac and cheese, sort of. That's, that's right, Dave, because the iconic blue box mac and cheese that we all know and love is undergoing a major shakeup. So Daria Allbringer stirs up this report. Is it really macaroni and cheese if there's no cheese? The Kraft Heinz companies come up with a recipe. It insists has the same creamy texture and flavor of the original mac and cheese. You know, the one in the blue box. But in place of the dairy ingredients, it substitutes things like fava bean protein and coconut oil powder. Kraft not mac and cheese will be rolled out to stores nationwide in the coming months. It was developed with Notco, a Chicago startup, which makes plant-based burgers, milk, and other products. Daria Albinger, ABC News. Yes, so the classic KD mac and cheese is getting a vegan version. So, you know, this could be something that, you know, cause a bit of a stir, Dave. I know how much you love mac and cheese, but I want to get Ramia's first uh, uh, impression first on this. So, Ramia, are you, are you considering or willing to try the mac and not cheese uh, KD if it hits the shelves near you? Yeah, I think I am. I've had vegan products, especially savory, that have been um, quite good. I don't like doing direct comparisons, though. It always makes me nervous because I know that we got people on this side and people on that side. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to disappoint people. But, um, <laughs> yes, I think in general, it, like, I've had vegan cheese. I've had vegan cheese products that were supposed to be creamy and were um, and and tasted delicious like honestly and and it wasn't sitting there trying to nitpick whether it tastes like real cheese or not but when you're doing the direct comparison between like the real mac oops am i allowed to say that anyways yeah, say it, the say it. Er, yeah. classic <laughs> mac and cheese <laughs> with the not cheese i i feel like yeah it's gonna be different um consistency taste i don't know what else they're not gonna make it exactly the same and that's the part of it that you gotta get on board with Alex, two days in a row, I'm being yeah. uh, difficult with you. No, maybe it's not two days in a row. Tuesday, I was being difficult with you. Fundamentally, would I buy the Kraft uh, not mac and cheese, the non-Kraft dinner, Kraft dinner off the shelf and try it? Probably, but here's the thing. I'm still gonna use milk when I mix it, right? So like, so like they can <laughs> offer me all the vegan mac and cheese in the world, but the fact is I'm still gonna use milk to mix it and they're fine. They're, they're uh, I'm not gonna put almond milk in mac and cheese. <laughs> what do I look like here, Ramya? What do I look like? Yeah, okay, so, okay, so okay. like, so Alex, it's one, it's one of these things where like if I had maybe vegan house guests coming over or visitors mm. and I knew I was going to get a, a dairy alternative milk as as well and I wanted to make mac and cheese for them like I would I would be willing to to do this but I also probably wouldn't serve my guests crap dinner <laughs> yeah Dave so I I have um, a couple uh, vegans in in my life in my family uh, and so it's like this is something that you know we're always looking at like oh what are vegan alternatives to things and and how can we kind of make it um, make accommodations to make them feel comfortable this is one that I I I'm probably much more open to because 
I, I will take the controversial stance that I'm not a huge fan of KD. And, and certainly the oh. cheese does not taste like cheese to me anyways. It's powdered. <laughs> no. it's, it's, it's dehydrated. <laughs> it's not real cheese to me anyways. So this is a very easy transition. Now, you make a very good point about adding the milk. I, I think you have to find, and, and you can't just replace it with like almond milk, as you said, Ramya, because you get the taste of nuts. You need to find something that's going to be a very new neutral milk. I think maybe even something like you go a bit sweet, coconut milk, maybe, you know, that could bring in a new kind of tropical Mm. flavor and you put in some uh, a plant-based margarine instead of butter. You know, I, I, there's a way to make this work, but it has it to take a bit more of thought to get to it instead of just, oh, here goes in the milk, here goes in the butter. Okay. It's ready to serve. I thought margarine did constitute vegan because it's like, it's just just chemicals. there, there's a lot of plant, uh, there's there's specific plant-based margarine, so there may be other uh, products or, or ingredients that may not be wholly vegan. Okay, okay, other 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 byproducts. Yeah, you know, yes. Alex, I think you identified something there that is such a reasonable point to bring up here that vegan does not necessarily mean organic, right? That if mm-hmm. Kraft is mass-producing uh, mac and cheese that isn't real cheese, <laughs> as you pointed out, the cheese powder that's in there already might not be. Uh, real cheese either and and it is one of these reminders that when someone just will simply say oh I'm going vegan to be more healthy like that doesn't necessarily inherently mean that you're going to be healthier because there's still plenty of processed food that you can cram into your mouth in the uh, in the vegan world Ramya yeah that's the thing I, I guess if you're eating KD on a regular anyways like I forgot about all this mixing and the DIY process of KD and you guys are bringing up the margarine and the milk I'm like oh yeah when was the last time I actually made KD but it's true it's all processed food anyways and honestly uh, Alex at the beginning of your <laughs> statements it sounded like it can't get any worse anyways so I might oh, as well cold. toss in all the others and I know I know it was when he started going off about the cheese but yeah either way I would try it though I would try it yeah, fun, 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 fundamentally, the difference is, right, like homemade mac and cheese versus boxed mm-hmm. mac and cheese. Boxed mac yeah. and cheese takes 15 minutes. Like, really good homemade mac and cheese takes a couple hours. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a full process. And and I, I, I will say, you know, Katie, can't get much worse than that. I, I think other brands <laughs> do do the box version better. I, I'm I'm willing to to go there with with ooh, uh, Katie. Ooh, I, ooh, I'm willing sh- to yeah. take my stand. Alex, shout him out, shout him out. Alex. What's what's your what, uh, what's your box to Mac of choice? Even Annie's, Annie's is a great step up. It oh. tastes oh, yeah. like they're using more like true cheese, less processed. They're still processing. It's still you know, powdered cheeses, but it actually tastes better. It's creamier, mm. it's richer. It doesn't have that neon orangey yellow glow oh. to it. Lots of time, lots of like options it. too. You can get different yeah. kinds of cheesed flavors. Big shout out to Daniel Penamondo in the uh, control room who turned me on to Annie's right before the pandemic. And let's just say that was a great time to be turned on to uh, a wide variety of boxed mac and cheeses. Uh, mm. Want to give a little shout out to the uh, Cheetos mac and cheese, uh, boxed, mm. ma- boxed mac and cheese. Um, some flavors are better than other. I find that the regular is yeah. like a little plain, but if you get the jalapeno one, the jalapeno, <laughs> uh, Ramya, boxed mac and cheese of choice, if at all. I have no idea, man. Oh, okay. I, I legit have living, not. I've been making over my own. Yeah, no, no. I, I've been making my own um, non-mac and cheese pasta for too long, and I feel like mm. I'm, I'm, I'm having a bit of FOMO here. I've never had Annie's. I've never had the Cheetos. I don't even know what KD tastes like anymore.
It's, a, it's, it's another reminder of elite athlete, Ramya Amuthun, who doesn't put this <laughs> no. junk in her body, Don't you know, this. like living clean over there, you know. Ramya is not vegan, but does live I clean. Take my, uh, <laughs> I take my calories and liquid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are uh, 19 minutes left in the show. I'm uh, trending in that direction, too. Uh, Alex, thank you for this. Ramya, before I say goodbye to you, what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time? Okay, we're talking about the new name drop feature on iOS 17. Want to talk about the safety and security behind it uh, with John Beeler on our app update. Also, the Professional Women's Hockey League is starting up their season January 1st. And um, uh, Brock Richardson on our sports update is going to tell us more about that. And on our um, uh, chatty bookshop, I believe, Apple has introduced a new feature called the year end review and ryan who wants to chat more about it because it's similar to audibles and spotify's mm-hmm. uh, feature of the year end review of our books yeah you just missed a conversation with myself and laura bain all about a spotify rap that about was, that? oh gosh mm-hmm. so good how many thousands of minutes of music do you think i listened to this year like oh god I can't do math that well. Over uh, 10? 111,000 hours of music Whoa. listening. How many hours of podcast? Uh, excuse me, minutes, 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 minutes. 111,000 okay. minutes, of, minutes. Uh, of music listening. How many minutes of podcast listening do you think I did? Mm, half that? 95,000. So suffice to say that suffice to say the $10 a month I'm paying for Spotify, I am yeah, uh, getting my dollars worth. Active listening, right, oh. Dave? You're not just falling oh. asleep to these pods. Oh. Baby. Uh, Ramya, thank you for this. <laughs> thank you. That is Ramya Amuthan. You can find Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Coming up after the break, the Center for Equitable Library Access is providing preloaded Envoy devices for clients. Karen McKay tells you how to get your hands on the audio player. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Center for Equitable Library Access introduced its Connect software earlier this year. The software is is designed to load books onto the Envoy Audio Connect. Envoy Connect Audio Player. Come on, Dave, you're a professional broadcaster. You can do this. Karen McKay is the communications manager at CELA and can offer a little more insight on how to get your hands on some of these neat audio players. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, too. So, Karen, I think process is important here because I know you came on to talk a little bit about the uh, Envoy player earlier in the year. But what's the process here for a client if they want to try to utilize this technology along with the software? So you can purchase the um, the player through retailers like Smart Life at CNIB. And then our service is that we will load books onto this player for you. You can either do that through our software, which we call Sela Connect, or you can send it to, uh, to us and we will load the player and then and send it back to you. So we've just launched a new service that uh, relates to this. And we can now, if you purchase a, a player, a Envoy Connect, we can now send it to you preloaded. So your very first round of books is ready to read right out of the box. Oh, awesome. So there's not the setup process. Yeah. So this is particularly interesting for folks who are maybe um, a little bit tech shy or uh, you know aren't quite sure how they're going to manage this. And 
And so we sort of take the, you know, that barrier out of the way, the first one about getting all set up. Um, and the really great thing is that there's no additional cost for this. So whether you buy the player and have it come to you ready to read, or whether you buy it and you want to do this setup on your own, because you like that kind of thing, um, it's all the same price, which is great. And it's a low price. It's only $97, which makes it really accessible. Karen, that is music to my ears. I was just telling a story earlier in the show today about uh, pulling out a soundbar. I bought a soundbar on Black Friday, and I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I'm going to plug it into the HDMI port on my TV, and we're going to have beautiful sound. And then I looked at the installation manual, and I was like, we're going to need to bring in some assistance here. So I love that, that sort of you and Sila and Smart Life have, have sort of thought this through and said, how can we make this easier for somebody who's not particularly tech savvy? That, like, that is music to my ears. What a great idea. Well, the whole idea behind this player is that it's um, that's a low barrier to entry for folks who want to use a, a player, not one of their sort of their big daisy players. It's low cost, it's portable, it's easy to use. You can charge it with a, a solar panel on the back if you're out on the go. Um, and it's just really, it's a great entry for folks who are either just sort of starting to need this kind of player or alternatively, people that have relied on other forms like CDs or, or Braille, for example, and they want an audio player uh, that they can download directly. This stuff is really easy to work with. And so, you know, it would also be a really great Christmas gift if you know somebody that could use something like this. And mm. it's, you know, only $97. So that makes it easier to buy. Karen, one last question on process, and then I promise we can get to literary news, but I'm just so interested by this technology and the way somebody could use it. How much variety can be loaded onto the Envoy player? Like how much access to your overall library can be included in the player and how many titles can it hold? So if you send it to, to us to load, we'll load 12 titles for you. If you use our Sela Connect software, it holds up to eight gigs. So depending on the size, eight mega gig rather. So depending on the size of the um, of the books that you're using, you know, you, you could load plenty. Like you could have your month's worth of reading very easily or, or maybe longer depending on how much you read. Uh, and it's very easy to use with the Sela Connect software and your your um, Sila bookshelf. So the process is really simplified again, just because we want folks to be able to, to use this player. Oh, fantastic stuff, Karen. And, and we'll share the, uh, the website as well as the, uh, the, the, the social media handle at the end of the segment of folks that uh, do want to learn more, but what a, what a really Great. cool idea. And like you said, could be a fantastic, fantastic gift. Speaking of an opportunity to maybe offer up a couple gifts this year, the gift of literature always goes a long way. You might want to consider some of the winners from this year's Writers' Trust Awards. One winner was Anuja Varghese. Their book, The Chrysalis, received the LGBTQ2S Plus Award for Emerging Writers. And Karen, you've spotlighted this book a number of times on the show, but there were a few more that you wanted to share. And even this one strikes me as familiar. Kai Thomas winning the Atwood Gibson Writers' Trust Fiction Prize for his book, In the Upper County. Why do you think this book stood out um, so I'm just going to read a little bit of what the jury said, and I think this really encapsulates why this book stands out and why it's such an important read. Um, so they said, in this exceptional debut, Kai Thomas deftly and compassionately braids deep, uh, deeply engrossing stories with stories that explore a little-known aspect of Canadian history. It's a mesmerizing lyrical testament to the power of storytelling 
uh, as this is among the protagonist's tools for survival in a harsh reality with violence and dehumanization. So this book, and we have talked about this one a little bit before as well, this book really weaves together stories of uh, the Indigenous populations in Canada and the uh, the Black folks that were coming in on the Underground Railroad. And so the, um, the book really does this deftly, and it's not something that we... Uh, we talk about or know about or read about much. So I think this is sort of a unique take on some Canadian history. So I'll just give you a brief overview of what the book is about. There are two characters. Uh, the, one character is a young Black woman. She was enslaved. She fled the uh, enslavement in the American South. And she ends up working for a Black journalist here in Canada. And she's been taught how to read and write uh, by an elderly neighbour. So she's able to, to do that work. One night, a neighbouring farm, some this young woman after a slave hunter has been shot dead in the land by an older woman who's recently arrived via the Underground Railroad. And when the older woman refuses to flee before the authorities uh, arrive, the farmer asks Lucinda to gather testimony from her so that she can you know, before she can be condemned for her crime. The old woman, though, she doesn't want to confess. She starts to have this conversation with young Lucinda about um, her life and Lucinda's life. And, and they begin this sort of extraordinary exchange about Black history, and it inter is interwoven with Indigenous people. Uh, it's really an enlightening book. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely story. It's a powerful story. Uh, if you, you know, if you like to think about things like the stories that are not told in our history, which are mostly women's stories. I think this is would be an important book to read. Uh, it also, you know, we, we get some insight into what life might have been like in the Underground Railroad and the 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 trip from, you know, the Deep South into Canada. Uh, I think that we really, I think this book was well chosen to be the winner because it it delves into a number of themes that are really topical, but it's also just incredibly beautifully written. I think a bit of perspective on inclusion also related to the award, uh, the Hillary Weston Award for nonfiction. Uh, Christina Sharp taking that one home for Ordinary Notes. Why do you think that one stood out to the jury members? So this is a really inventive book. Um, it's not written as a, you know, in typical prose style. It's written as a series of small notes, and it really takes us into the the life of uh, a, a Black person who um, has to navigate both, you know, large life-affirming uh, events, but also small microaggressions and uh, racism. And so this is really, uh, again, it's a it's an important book. The, the jury said about this one, with tenderness, bravery, and razor-sharp poetic language, Christina Sharp invites the reader to witness the ordinary joys and sorrows of Black lives and how they're transformed within the everyday reality of systems of racial supremacy. In doing so, she creates a new narrative uh, space that is at once both intimate, deeply informed, and also uncompromising. And so, again, I think this book really speaks to... Um, understanding that the day-to-day -day experiences in the construct of racism it's got some really beautiful pieces to it um one of the notes that i wanted to write about silences and terror and acts that hover over generations over centuries i began writing about my mother and my grandmother and so that's from note 18 and so there's 248 notes and so you sort of build your understanding uh as you read through this book it's uh i think it really gives us a different perspective about these individual topics and their collective weight right you, you see how i mean as a white person i might understand 
microaggressions to one degree, but I, I wouldn't understand the collective weight about what happens daily as those all sort of build to shape our, our lives and our culture and our systems. So I think this is a really interesting book and a really inventive way to have or to spark those conversations. I think across the board, uh, all three books that are going to be featured right here in this conversation do that. They sort of fundamentally challenge the viewpoint that we might have in regards to the status quo. And that includes David R. Sampson taking home the Balsilli Prize for Public Policy for his book, Our Tribal Future, How to Channel Our Foundational Human Instincts into a Force for Good. Karen, I've got to hold you to about a minute to 90 seconds on this one, but why is this one worth a read? Well, I'm going to go back to the jury piece as well, because I think it really encapsulates. It says that David Sampson does something remarkable in this book. It's sparkling prose and richly empirical data. He provides a tour de force of our tribal brains and how they operate in the modern world. Things that were essential to our survival in the past are now potentially um, imperilous to our future. And so the important contribution of this book explains why trust is declining across our society. And I think that's a really important thing for us to understand and why our public spaces feel increasingly hostile. He delves into why we uh, we end up in a tribal situation, why that was important to us in sort of our early evolutionary history, and how it's navigated us into increasingly complex social landscapes. Why are we so uh, angry at each other online? Why is that related to tribe? So, you know, we see this sort of, um, the effects of tribal relationships in our news all the time. You know, it's the, it's the basis for war, it's the basis for uh, a lot of hate, uh, but also it can be the basis for really important things about altruism and community and kindness. And so I think understanding our our innate, uh, you know, um, capacity for tribalism can really help us combat the bad effects that it can have in our in our society. I think it's a really important book for public policy and for folks who are, uh, you know, involved in uh shaping our institutions and our culture. Karen, thank you for this. That's Karen McKay, Communications Manager at the Centre for Equitable Library Access. That's all the time there is for the show this week. Until Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, I'm Dave Brown, reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Let's wrap up the week of broadcasting by rolling those credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Entertainment reporter, Laura Bain. Contributors, Rami Amutin, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanero. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion-Jones, Bob Pagrak. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. DV producer, Mark Phoenix. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations Coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of Operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of Live Productions, Paula Deneen. Director of Content Development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv.
The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.